Very good to see all of you here this morning. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear fathers, we come before you today. We pray that you will help us to understand your word. This word which is uh, so important to connect with you, to understand who you are, and to keep encouraging us to hold firm to you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now my sons play rugby. <clears throat> and one of the things I unexpectedly enjoyed from uh, watching them play was I, I actually enjoyed watching the coach coach the players. Because uh, the coaches have these really priceless nuggets of wisdom, right? So, you know, they'll come back and they'll be losing or they didn't play very well. And then you'll say, you all know what insanity is? Insanity is when you do the same thing over and over again and you expect a different result, right? So you all must be insane the same thing over and over again and you expect to do get something different. And uh, the coach kept saying this over and over again to show them how they needed to learn from the past and how the past was really important in terms of determining how they were to succeed in the present. Now I think that by that very definition, there must be many, many insane people around today. Because many people don't learn from the past. In fact, I think one of the problems and one of the symptoms of today is people actually don't know much about the past at all. So I was reading uh, uh, this movie review about uh, this movie that's out in the cinema called uh, The Man from Uncle. Okay, I don't know whether anybody's seen it yet. Okay, uh, Seng Yun's seen it. Seng Yun's a movie buff. And, uh, and it said that the first five minutes of the movie was basically trying to have uh, an explanation of the Cold War and the Berlin Wall. And I was thinking to myself, that's really amazing, right? Because first of all, I must show how old I am because... The Berlin Wall and the, and the Cold War is something that I seem to be very familiar with, but it only really happened in uh, the last 30 years ago, in the, in, the, in the 60s to the 80s, right? The Cold War between America and Russia. So a lot of people today don't know about the past, and because they don't know about the past, they don't know about how to live in the present. So today, as we look at God's Word, we don't want to be insane, but I think we want to be able to understand from the past how we are to live today. So let's have a look at the, the past, which is Daniel chapter 5. And it begins with this guy called King Belshazzar. Okay? King Belshazzar gave a great banquet, uh, not yet, not yet, not yet, uh, for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Now who is this person, Belshazzar? So if you look up here on the timeline, you should have got this in the Bible study. We've been referring to this uh, for quite a while. If you look up, oh, I didn't have my, um, my, my, my red pointer, but it should be very clear there, right? So Nebuchadnezzar was actually the first king uh, who ruled in the kingdom of Babylon. And uh, much, much later, uh, there was this guy called Belshazzar. Now from what we can understand from history, Belshazzar actually ruled at the same time as his father. His father was this fellow called Nabonidus. Okay, so uh, from what we understand, while Nabonidus was out fighting and conquering. His son, his eldest son, Belshazzar, was the co-regent or co-king who used to rule the capital in Babylon. 
Okay, so we're looking at a period probably 20 or 40 or even 60 years after the period of the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in chapter 4. Okay, so a bit between our time and the Cold War. Okay, so that, that period, okay, 30, 40 years. Now, as young people are liable to do what their parents are hard at work going to war, uh, young King Belshazzar was having a party, okay, while his dad was working hard, okay, and, and he was out of the house. And it wasn't a small affair, it was a large, large affair with thousands of people. Now, it wasn't enough that Belshazzar was having this party, but in the midst of it, whether he was drunk, or whether on impulse, or whether he planned it, he ordered that the items of worship from the temple of Jerusalem be brought out to the party. It probably wasn't just, you know, he was, he was picking on the Jewish people, and he just brought out the stuff from the Jewish temple, but probably uh, the, 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 the things of worship from all the kingdoms that Nebuchadnezzar had conquered. He ordered all of these to be brought out so that they could, they could impress his guests. Because how much more impressive would it be? You know, here we have ranged before you. Look at all these great uh, items of uh, spoils and treasure and loot that we have gathered from all these great nations. So, you know, like Ming Dynasty vase or, you know, whatever, something from India, something, you know, it's like all these things which would represent the greatness of his kingdom. But it wasn't enough just to look and to be reminded and to celebrate all these great nations and all these trophies that they had accumulated. Because King Belshazzar decided then that they would use these items to enjoy themselves with. And they would get the items, including the items from the temple in Jerusalem, for drinking and getting drunk. Now, these items, particularly the items from the temple in Jerusalem, were holy consecrated, sacred items, but they were now being debased and degraded, corrupted and defiled, because what was once only used to worship God was now used for drinking and getting drunk. But if that wasn't enough, in verse 4, we read that while they were drinking from these sacred, consecrated and holy items from the temple, at the same time they were praising the idols, praising their own gods. The gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now last week, in the dream of his great-great ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar, we learned several things about the God of Israel, the God of whom they were drinking the cups from. And if you look up here, just to remind us, this God had several characteristics, and these characteristics were shown very plainly to King Nebuchadnezzar. So King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 2 had proclaimed to everyone, It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed before me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. In Daniel chapter 4, Daniel uh, said to the king, The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. 
And again, in Daniel chapter 4, this is what happens when the dream is fulfilled, right? You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump with the tree in its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. So what is the God of Israel like? The God whom they were mocking by using the sacred items of the temple for drinking and partying and getting drunk. Well, God is described as sovereign or in charge of all things. He is the boss. He rules. He has eternal dominion in everything. So these proclamations, these lessons were learned by King Nebuchadnezzar maybe 30 or 40 years ago. So if this was the sort of God that revealed himself to King Nebuchadnezzar, then how would this God respond to King Belshazzar, the great-great-great-grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, who now forgot about this God and was now misusing the items in the temple? Well, in verse 5 it says, Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees became weak and his knees were knocking. Now, God acts in such a way as to gain maximum attention, right? Okay, so God becomes like the graffiti artist. Okay. Now usually, I remember when I was living in Sydney in Australia, people who draw graffiti, uh, do it in the dark of the night where no one is around, right? Maybe why I can tell you what happens in Perth, but that's what happens in Sydney. Okay, like, you know, you go to sleep one night, then you wake up the next morning, hey, there's graffiti there. Okay? And actually, even though you think there's no graffiti in Singapore, actually there is, actually. If you go riding in the rail corridor, under all the bridges in the rail corridor, you see graffiti, right? And uh, and you actually see people doing graffiti there uh, even during the day because you know why? It's dark and there's no one there. And that's what people do, right? Because when you do graffiti, you want privacy. You don't want to do it in front of people and get caught. But God is not like that. God obviously wants this graffiti to be seen. And that's why in verse 5 it says that this human hand appears and writes on the plaster near the lampstand. Because the lampstand would, would shed light on this graffiti so that all the nobles, all their wives, all their concubines and the king could see without doubt that God himself had written this graffiti on the wall. Because this would not be some graffiti written, written by some offended Jewish exile, you know, making some sort of political statement against the king, you know. He's not like some like Jewish Bursi supporter wearing a yellow shirt, you know, asking Belshazzar where his $700 million came from, right? Okay, this was God speaking out in front of Belshazzar and saying, look, what you're doing is wrong and he's going to judge him for it. And this clear, unmistakable message was clear to the king. And he called all his advisors, all his astrologers, all the diviners, all the wise men, and asked them what this, this inscription, this holy inscription mean. Even with the promise of being clothed in purple, a gold chain, 
And being made the third highest ruler, no one was able to interpret the graffiti or the inscription. And again, this reminds us of what happens in history, right? It reminds us of what happened in the past. Because when King Belshazzar had his dream in Daniel chapter 2, the very same thing happened. So remember in Daniel chapter 2? Oh, it's up here already. He asked the astrologers over and over again, tell me my dream. Reveal to me my dream and interpret it. And their answer was, there is no man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great or mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. See, the similarity in the lesson that we are to learn here is that these gods, these gods of the diviners, the astrologers, the magicians, the ones who were praised just a moment ago, the gods of gold, silver, iron, bronze, and wood, they are nothing. They are useless. They can't speak. They couldn't speak in Daniel chapter 2, 40 years ago or 60 years ago. Actually, no, it must be more than that. 60 years ago because the dream came at the beginning of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign in 605 BC. They couldn't speak then and they can't speak now in his great-great-grandson's uh, inscription. In fact, verse 9 uh, basically summarizes what you get when you turn to the gods of King Belshazzar. It says that the king was even more terrified and his face grew even more pale. His nobles were baffled. They became blur. Right? They became like sotong. Right? And that's what you get because when you turn to these gods, they do not speak. They do not reveal. There is no benefit of turning to them. So the king is none the wiser. But in verse 10, there is someone who can solve the problem, isn't it? And the, the, the problem seems to be solved because the queen comes to the king's aid. The queen, it says in verse 10, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed, don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. Now, who is this queen? Okay, Why is the queen mentioned here? The queen was not Belshazzar's wife. Okay, if, you, if you look earlier on in verse 1 and 2, uh, the, 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 the wives of King Belshazzar was, were already at the banquet. Right? Everybody was there. The queen here was probably the queen mother, maybe Nabonidus' wife, or even some people say maybe Nebuchadnezzar's wife. So, she's not wiser than Belshazzar. 
She's not wiser than his nobles or advisors, but what she has is that she knows the past. She knows history. She remembers Daniel, and she remembers how Daniel could speak from God. So, it's a hint of what Belshazzar's problem is. Because he's more than happy to remember Nebuchadnezzar, his, his ancestor, and claim his victories and prestige, and, and how he was such a great man. But he didn't know the history, the lessons, the really important things of Nebuchadnezzar. And that's why when we finally read when Daniel is actually brought before the king, what does Daniel do? You notice when Daniel comes before the king, he doesn't interpret the dream, or sorry, not the dream, he doesn't interpret the inscription straight away, but he gives Belshazzar a history lesson, isn't it? That's the first thing he does. The most important thing for Belshazzar was to know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And that's why in verse 18 it says, Your Majesty, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets them over them anyone he wishes. See, the heart of this history lesson is about God and it's about what King Nebuchadnezzar learned about God all those years ago in chapter 4. 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, who knows? But these lessons were vitally important. That God was sovereign, that God humbled the proud, that God demanded recognition. And the attitude that King Nebuchadnezzar recognized before this God was to acknowledge him, be humble before him, and to praise him. But what did his great-great-grandson Belshazzar do instead? He mocked God. He praised the idols. He abused and debased the very things of God. Now I want you to notice what it says here in verse 22, right? Because what makes it all the worse is because in verse 22 it says, But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself though you knew all this. The key word here is the word you knew all these things. See, Belshazzar sat in history class. Belshazzar knew these things. He knew it in his head, but he didn't know it in his heart. He either chose not to believe in it or he chose not to accept it, but he would not learn the lessons that his great-great-grandfather Nebuchadnezzar learned. That God was not a God that you messed with. That God was not a God that you mocked. 
that you must humble yourself before Him. In fact, look at what it says in verse 23. Rather than learning the lessons of his uh, predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, he says, instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have challenged God. You have raised your fist against God. And as a result, he had painted this big bullseye on his chest and dared God to shoot him down, right? Because that's effectively what Belshazzar had done. He had raised his fists defiantly against God and set himself up against God and challenged God even though he knew what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. So then, what did God do? Well, Daniel then goes on to explain what the inscription means. And this is what the inscription means, actually, if you, if you look at it in Aramaic, which is the original language. So if you look up here, <clears throat> basically, um, what you read, mene, mene, tekel, pasin, is a series of weights. Okay? 600 grams, 600 grams, 10 grams, and half. Half meaning half of the 600 grams or half of the 10. So it could be 300 or 5, right? So no wonder, you know, the, the, uh, diviners and magicians and astrologers, they couldn't figure it out. You know, what is this? Is it a recipe for making a cake? Right? You know, 600 grams of flour, then 600 grams of egg, 10 grams of sugar, and 30 grams of butter or something. What are we talking about here, right? How is this relevant to what is happening here? But these sequence of weights in Aramaic, apparently, can also sound very much like verbs. Okay? So it can sound like this. Next slide. Literally, number, number, weigh, and divide. And this is what God really meant when he put up this inscription. He was actually proclaiming the verdict and the judgment on King Belshazzar for setting himself up against God. So it says there very clearly in verse 26, Mene, your God has numbered your days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And we read there, that verse 29, Belshazzar seems like a pretty good guy. He fulfills his promise to Daniel. He gives him purple, a gold chain, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler of the kingdom. But in verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. No retirement age for Darius, right? Now, what are the lessons here? Because it seems like a very straightforward story. Right, what, what, what does it really mean for us today? Well, the first thing, I think, is as we read this thing, knowing history and knowing the past is very, very important. Because that is the mistake of King Belshazzar. He didn't know his past. He didn't know history. So he set himself up against God and challenged God. And I think that in order to know the person and the power and the character of God, we look at his acts in history. I think that's why we read the Bible, isn't it? I think that's why we do quiet time. I think that's why when we go to bed at night and we wake up in the morning, we are encouraged to read God's word. Because that's where we are reminded of God acting in history and reminding ourselves of the reality of God. I think one of the saddest things today 
is how people try to find God outside of God acting in history. They want to feel God and to feel the closeness of God in Him acting in my life today. I want God to bless me today and make me rich. I want God to heal me of my sicknesses. I want God to answer my prayers. Then I know that God is real and God is powerful. Or maybe some other people say, well, I want to see God acting every Sunday. When I come to church on Sunday, I want to see people speaking in tongues. I want to see people being healed. I want to see people prophesying. Then I know that God is real and powerful and close to me. But God doesn't act like that. Neither does he promise to act like that. He promises in his word to act at his time, at his place. Now you think of uh, Daniel's time. In the timeline that we we are shown here, basically God has revealed himself in a very powerful way to King Nebuchadnezzar and to King Belshazzar. That's two times in 40 years. But two times in a very, very powerful way, which is recorded for us Today, as we read God's word, and it tells us today, many thousands of years later, of a God who's sovereign, who's the boss, who rules, and has eternal dominion. See, we don't need for God to reveal himself to us every day. What we need to do is we need to go back to the Bible and remind it of how God acts in history to know that God is a powerful God. You know, I was, I was told uh, recently about how it's very sad that some people fall away when they meet with unfortunate circumstances. Maybe you lose your job and you get unemployed. Maybe you have a bad boss at work. Maybe you don't do so well at school. And for some of these people, they believe because God didn't make life good for me, He didn't answer my prayers and get rid of my bad boss or find me a job, then he's not real, he's not powerful, he's not sovereign, he's not the boss. And then they fall away from God totally. But that is the wrong way to meet with God. See, God meets with us through his actions in history, his powerful actions in history. And it mustn't be that just because I'm facing hard times today, or tomorrow, or next year, or the whole year, that somehow God is less powerful or less sovereign or less in charge than any other time. And I think this is such a very important lesson for us because more and more I see that people feel that God must answer my prayers or must do these things or else he's not real. And then they fall away. In fact, someone just wrote to me uh, from Melbourne, uh, one of the student workers, saying how he met this, this young man from China who said that he was a Christian but he found out that he, his whole understanding of the Christian God was that God had helped him do well in his studies. So if he doesn't do well in his studies anymore, what, what does it say about God? It must be that he's not a very powerful God or he's not a God at all. But that's not the way that God reveals himself as sovereign, as powerful. You see, look at what it says there in verse 23. It says there in verse 23 that Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven and you had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, of iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God 
who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. I wonder whether you see the power and sovereignty of God in such absolute terms. Do you see God as holding in his hands your life? Actually, I prefer the other translation, which is your breath. Right? If you look at the NASB or some other ESV translations, it says it's not life, it's your breath. Right? Your very breath is held by the hands of God and all your ways. That is how powerful God is. Right? Your, your breath, the next breath that you take is controlled by God. God is so sovereign that even your breath is controlled by God. And that means that even the breath of King Belshazzar was controlled by God. And that means that the world around us is controlled by God. It means that, you know, the situation that you find yourself in, the unhappy situation that you may find yourself in, is not God in control of it too? Does not the God who controls all these things control where you find yourself right now? So it means that this God even in the midst of our difficulty or hardship, is in control. He's never out of control. And that's why he's able to bring his plans to pass. Now, I think as we read the whole scope, we've only been focusing on Daniel chapter 5, but as we focus on the whole scope of Daniel, we see just how it really shows that all things are in God's hands. You see, in verse 21 to verse 30, God sends Daniel with the interpretation of the inscription. And that very night, the inscription on the wall is fulfilled. But then, think back earlier to chapter 2, which is over here on the slide up here, right? In the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, in 605 BC, right? 605, 604 BC. What was the dream about? It was about the four kingdoms. And remember we said that the second kingdom was the the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Medo-Persian empire. So if you look at the slide, right, the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had in 604 BC was fulfilled 65 years later. So God just doesn't fulfill his dream. Oh, okay, uh, you know, the dream is going to happen, but somewhere along the line, we don't know where, right, it's going to happen. But he fulfills that dream at the same time as fulfilling the inscription on the wall. But that's not all. If you look wider in the whole of the Old Testament, look at what Jeremiah says. Next slide. Jeremiah had warned uh, the nation of Israel right, and Judah what was happening in the future because of their sinfulness. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north And my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I'll bring them against this land and its inhabitants and all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and of scorn and everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 
70 years. And when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt declares the Lord, and I will make desolate forever. Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah lived between 625 to 7, 574 BC, right? So again, if you, if you look up on this slide, you see that at the passing of Belshazzar and the coming of Darius the Mede, we're coming up to the 70 year period. So how sovereign is God? How powerful is God? How powerful the hands which hold the fate of humanity? Well, very powerful. The inscription on the wall, he can fulfill straight away. The dream of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2, he fulfills 65 years later. The promise of what he gave in Jeremiah, he fulfills that 70 years later, the Nebuchadnezzar, um, Nebuchadnezzar's reign and, and those of his, uh, his future children will be come to an end. And they will be brought back to Israel. See, I think that as we read the whole scope of history, we see that God is always acting at the right time in his control. See, that's why if you look at the New Testament, right? So if you look at Romans, just up here, the next slide. Oh, okay, this is the Babylonian Empire, next one. Okay, so then it gets taken over by, oh, taken over by the Persians and the Medes, okay? So you can see how the Babylonian Empire, all, all gone, okay? No, none left. So look at what it says here in Romans chapter 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, but for, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for this, for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, in Galatians chapter 4, it says, so when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, when it was the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, it's just like the Apostles' Creed, right? To redeem those under law so that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. See, God does things in His time, at the right time, at the time of His choosing, in His wisdom. And therefore, what we see here is that we must keep trusting in this God. We must be on the right side of history. Because if God is the one who controls everything, then it's pretty stupid to set yourself up like Belshazzar and raise your fist against God. And challenge God. But rather you must be on the right side of history. Through Jesus. And to belong to God. Now in conclusion, I think it's really good to come to church on Sundays. And I really look forward to it. Because we are all among friends, right? But more than friends, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. But you know what makes us special? What makes us special is because we are all on the right side of history. See, if you believe in God then He is watching over you right now. He sent Jesus at just the right time. And He saved you at just the right time. He worked in your heart to soften your heart, to bring you to a knowledge of God, to give you the interest in Jesus. 
to allow you uh, to give all of yourself to Jesus. And I think that what a great encouragement this is. That as we come to this God, this powerful God, you know in your heart that He is in control of everything. Everything that happens in this world, everything that happens in your life, and that you are on the right side of history. He is on your side. And I hope that as we look at the passage today, it will be a real encouragement for us not to mess with God or to set up ourselves against God, but to continue to be on the right side of history, to trust in God, to rely on God, and especially the God who sent us Jesus Christ at just the right time. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, Help us as we step back from the world, as we step back from uh, the, the environment of bad news in this world, of, of recession, of elections, of migrant crisis, to step back even further than that and to see that you are a God who controls all things. Help us not to be overwhelmed by the things of this world, but to see that you are a God who has set the course of history and has set a goal for history and that you have brought all things under the feet of Jesus and that you have sent Jesus to die for us. Help us not to be like King Belshazzar who raised his fist against you, who set himself against you, who was proud and was not humble, who was idolatrous rather than a worshipper of you. Dear Father, we pray for each and every one of us here today that as we know of what a great, awesome and sovereign God who has eternal dominion, that we continue always to be humble before you, to be on your side, to keep trusting in Jesus and to keep relying on you in everything. Even when things go wrong, even when things are bad, you know who among us here today may be struggling in that way, that, that you will open our eyes so that we will look back at your mighty acts in history and to know that you are real, to know that you continue to act and to never leave you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.